You're listening to the Soul Career Podcast, the podcast that brings you stories from people who've taken a risk to discover careers that fill them with purpose and make them come alive. I'm your host, Lysandra Ricketts. Now for the episode. Hi guys, thanks for joining us on Soul Career. I'm Lysandra Ricketts, and today I have the immense pleasure of interviewing Sanya Goff. Before I introduce Sanya, I have to say, for those of you guys joining us on the video podcast on our YouTube channel, you'll see that I'm my shade, my glasses look like shade. That's because I'm testing out some new transitions lenses, and you know, I don't know how I, how I feel about them. How do you feel about them, Sanya? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Yeah, thumbs up, girl. <laughs> you thumbs up? Okay, because I'm giving them a thumbs down. But okay, so you're going to see me wearing something, my transitions lenses on this whole career YouTube channel. But okay, so let's jump into Sanya's intro. So Sanya has had what many people would describe as a traditional corporate career, climbing the ladder in her law firm to partner sitting on multiple prestigious boards, all while being a wife, a mother, and having a strong interest in philanthropy. So today I'm going to find out from Sanya how she was able to shape a traditional career in law into a soul career. Sanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> so Sanya, you are a US citizen who chose to live in Jamaica. And in fact, many Jamaicans are dual citizens with the U.S. and Jamaica or the U.K. and Jamaica. So I found this really interesting in the context of, you know, when Trump was president. And I'm so, you know, I'm able to say this in the past tense now. <laughs> a lot of Americans were thinking about living abroad. So in that context, I find your decision to live in Jamaica as a U.S. citizen really interesting. What led to that decision? So I, I am also a dual citizen. So uh, my parents are Jamaican, but they lived in the U.S. for many, many years. And so I, um, I was born in the States, um, lived in, born in Chicago, actually. And I think my parents just made the decision to return to Jamaica. So when I was about three, we all returned to Jamaica. In fact, my, my um, youngest sibling is Jamaican, well, born here. And um, so really, all I really knew growing up was Jamaica. I mean, in fact, I was happy to back up my U.S. passport when I had to travel to any country <laughs> outside of Jamaica. But, but Jamaica is really all I know. And so I still, I really do consider myself to be a Jamaican. Um, my, my perspectives on a lot of things are very much Jamaican. Um, and so for me, it wasn't really a difficult decision to continue to study here. Um, I, mean, I mean, to go to school and continue, you know, further studies here. But interestingly, there are four of us, uh, my twin sister, she, I mean, she hightailed it out of Jamaica as soon as six form was over. Uh, my brother also left as soon as six form was over. And my little sister and I were the only ones that actually kind of stayed behind. But it really wasn't hard for me. Honestly, Lysandra, even, even though tertiary studies would have had, I would have had greater options, even from the tuition point of view, it really wasn't something that I ever felt inclined to do. I... I um, thought about studying in the UK and for a brief moment explored that. And when that really wasn't looking like it was going to come together the way I would have wanted, um, I decided to go to the University of the West Indies. And I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't really choose law, to be honest. It was like a process of elimination. I didn't have science subjects for medicine. I didn't have physics and math for engineering. It was like I had the subjects for law. And so I applied and got in. And during those years, though, 
not sure what happens now, but only a handful of students were selected from high school to transition directly into the faculty. Most persons had to have a first degree before. So I happen to have been one of the, you know, handful of students who went directly into law. And then it's, the rest is just kind of, you know, one thing after another. So Sanya, let's dive a little deeper into that journey towards becoming a lawyer, because I actually have a lot of consultation calls with lawyers who aren't sure that they chose the right thing with law, um, but you ended up making law your sole career. So how did you go from college, getting your degree in law, all the way up to partner at a law firm? What was that journey like? So some really good questions. Um, so after I left law, uh, law school, I got an offer from, and accepted an offer from Miles Fletcher and Gordon, um, a well-known um, law firm. In fact, at the time, um, it was one of the largest law firms in Jamaica. It probably still is, I think. And, you know, Miles is, is one, is really a stellar outstanding firm. And I learned a lot. I was there for about seven years. And I transitioned from MFG to a regional law firm um, called Lex Caribbean. So Lex has offices in Jamaica, Trinidad and Barbados. In fact, the Jamaican office just closed maybe about a year ago. But at the time, it was a very small office um, with a small footprint in Jamaica, but really, um, really big presence in, in other countries in the Caribbean. And so I worked there and that opened up, you know, new practice areas of banking, insolvency. And that's how I started to transition into doing the capital markets and corporate, corporate law work that I do now. Um, but even the transition from Myers is an interesting story because I... Um, was in a relationship, married Gavin Goff, who is very active on social media. So many of your listeners might know who he is. Um, and very much, you know, um, a very vocal attorney on many issues that take place in Jamaica. But the firm didn't, had as a policy that they didn't allow married partners into the partnership. And so that was a challenge because we were, I was at the firm about seven, six, yeah, six or seven years and the discussion around partnership and the partnership where, where we both were on the partnership track would, would have come up because we both started Miles at the same time. So we would have been both up for contemplation for partnership at the same time. And so it was very early in the marriage when we had to have this conversation around, you know, what's going to happen, right? Um, and who would stay on transition and who wouldn't, you know? And so anyway, I got the offer from Lex and it came at a really good time. It came just in time, actually. And so I took the decision to transition from MFG. Um, and it wasn't an easy decision. It was quite emotional because I was very attached to the firm. I learned a lot about the practice of law. I learned a lot about, um, you know, just the correct ethical postures and, and, and how to practice properly as an attorney. Because one of the things um, I, I would encourage any young attorney is to try and find a mentor in, um, ideally in a, in a law firm culture because there is something around client care and the, the practice culture that you get from persons who have um, senior attorneys who've worked in the law firm environment. And I got the benefit of that. So when I transitioned to Lex, the invitation, the offer from Lex was an offer for partnership. And so I, I made that, you know, natural transition. And then, as I said, my practice era expanded because at Myers, I did a lot of intellectual property and pensions law. But when I transitioned to Lex, their focus was really corporate and commercial law. So that just kind of opened up to me as a practice area. And so I continued the intellectual property work, but then I continued to grow the pensions practice and grow the corporate commercial practice. The Lex experience ended, ended within a year. Um, that was the best move for me. And um, I then got an offer from HMF, which is my current firm now. Um, I love HMF, HMF, excellent culture, um, really 
really chill attorneys, really bright at the top of their field. And I continue to grow and learn while I'm here. But equally, because I was at Lex as a partner, the offer from HMF was always a discussion, you know, around partnership. And so that's kind of how my journey went. The truth is though, Lissandra, you know, many of you listeners may not know if they're happy and they, they want to do this. And if law is something they want to continue to do for the next 20, 30 years. And I get that because in my early years, I wasn't sure that this is what I wanted to do either because I had such a deep passion for volunteerism and social work. Part of me considered, you know, just going full-time into doing that. Not sure how I would have really survived, but <laughs> the, that was really, that was part of the kind of struggle for me is, you know, is this it, is this it, you know, just corporate clients, closing deals, is this the sum total of what I'm going to be doing for my life? Um, and that's where my work in pensions law, I think, um, has, has opened up and, and tapped into that volunteer energy that I have, because I do see my advocacy in that area as a big part of my contribution to nation building. But what I would say is that law is never a wasted degree. It, it, it could never be considered a wasted degree. The reality is that it's an excellent stepping stone for other um, other endeavors, whether it be communications, public relations, um, banking, finance, you, having a law degree is an excellent um, um, tool and a set of skills that you, you, you can lean on if you wanted to transition into something else. Wow, you covered so much there. I especially love the story about how you met Gavin as an associate at your first law firm. But actually, actually, yeah, met. <laughs> in first form at Campion. Gavin has been my friend, Lissandro, since we were 11. So we've been, we've been friends since we're 11, together since we we're 23. Um, so we've been together for like 17 years. Se 17 years, yeah, 17. <laughs> um, and we've been married for 11. So Gavin's been around for a long, long time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So, but you were together while at your first law firm. And then when the decision came, because you were there for six or seven years, so climbing the corporate ladder, and then you got to the partner level. And so did Gavin. And at that point, one of you had to make a decision to leave the firm, and it was you. So that's very interesting, but it brought you on this path to finding your passion in law, which is pensions and pension reform. So I wanna talk a little bit more about that. First, can you tell us about the Jamaican context regarding pensions? Why do so many Jamaicans not have pensions? It's such an important part of savings and retirement in other countries, but here we don't have a strong culture around it. So tell us about that. Why does that happen? And why did you become so passionate about it? So good question. I and I love talking about pensions and retirement security. I mean, I find the whole thing absolutely sexy. Like, I love talking about it. Um, and I rarely find people who invite me to talk about it. So I'm always happy for the opportunity to just, you know. If it gets too so boring, but, I'm going to cut you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so essentially, we have what we call, and, you know, not to get too technical, but we have like a three-pillar system for, for pensions in Jamaica. So we have our NIS, which... For those of you who are overseas listeners, it's very similar to the social security system like in the US, right? So it's a mandatory pay-as-you-go system, but the NIS doesn't really give you a good benefit in retirement. So people um, will also participate in what you call um, superannuation funds, which are pension funds offered by an employer. I believe that's similar to the 401k in the US, right? And then you have approved retirement schemes, which are for... Um, self-employed persons or persons who are working with someone an employer doesn't offer a pension plan. That's right. <laughs> That's you. 
an approved retirement scheme, which we call an ARS in Jamaica, is very similar to the IRA in the U.S. And then we always encourage, you know, the third pillar is really your personal savings. So all those three pillars are to really get you to a place where you have an adequate retirement security savings in, in retirement. The truth is that we don't have a culture of people thinking that hard on the line. We have a culture in Jamaica, and for, for your U.S. listeners, I'm going to say a little patois that might, um, but I'll translate. So we have, a, we have a view that my picnic is my pension. My picnic and my pension, right? Which is, I have raised my children, I've raised them well, um, I've done my best, and they're now to look after me. Uh, I know that's not, you, you know, generally a universally held kind of culture. Um, it's, it's very... There are other countries that have it, but, you know, especially in Latin America kind of view that I mean, this is how it is. You know, children look after their elderly, children look after their parents. Parents don't need to save for retirement for themselves. I don't know if that's really what you find in the U.S. I think in the U.S. it's a little different, but that's what we find. And because of that cultural issue, that cultural mindset, people don't prioritize retirement savings. So when you combine public sector workers and private sector workers, Lysandro, Retirement savings is at about 17%. So that means wow. of all people working in Jamaica, only about 17% of those workers save for retirement. That coupled with the fact that... That's really shocking. That's really shocking. No, I, it explains yeah. a lot of the poverty that we see. For and I'm glad you used that word because old age poverty is real. A lot of people, I mean, you, you may, know, may know of a few and, you know, your listeners as well, persons who lived well when they were working, but did not make adequate savings and, you know, um, arrangements for retirement and find themselves in their retirement years living in poverty. And in particular, I will say that women are a particularly vulnerable group because women live longer than men. They retire usually earlier than men. They experience health issues or, um, usually earlier than men and yet women have the greatest um you know the highest incidence of disruption of pension of a service for child you know looking after children um sometimes looking after the elderly so you find that women also you know even if we break down that 16 17 percent the percentage of those that represent women um you know or sorry the percentage that don't represent women you find are, are particularly vulnerable and so a big part of what the Pension Industry Association has been doing is lobbying for greater reform around pension security and also lobbying to and also putting effort behind financial literacy and for people to understand the importance of pension savings. But Lissandra, financial literacy is not going to move the needle on pension savings. People are not going to hear a talk from Sandra Goff and run and set up an ARS. That's, that's really how it happens. And so part of what needs to happen is the government taking the step to to put in place measures that compel people to save and so that's part of some of the work that the piag is doing um, so i'm not going to bore your listeners about like some of that but i'm happy to talk about some of those programs but we are working with um the government looking at things like micro pensions and we also want to put to the government a concept about auto enrollment which exists in a couple of states in the u.s in illinois california um to name two. I know there are about two or three other states, but it's, it's had a great deal of success in, in, in a few states in the US and quite a few states are looking at enroll, um, implementing auto-enrollment, which simply means if your employer doesn't have a pension plan or you are not otherwise in an IRA, they must enroll you in one. And that will hope that hopefully will move the needle on pension coverage. 
Absolutely. It's such an important part of the conversation. And when I look at my American friends, thinking about pensions from their very young, thinking about their 401k, where the employer matches their contributions to the 401k, and that it's required in many, in many cases. And then I look at my Jamaican friends who are not thinking about that as much. Um, and if they're not employed to a corporation, a large corporation here, then it's not a part of the conversation at all. So this work is really important. What I would say as well is, um, you know, what I, what I often encourage people, hope people, for people to look at it is that it allows you to live an independent and dignified life in retirement. It allows you to have the, the ability to make decisions that you couldn't otherwise make if you, if, you, if you didn't have money, if you just didn't have financial security. And I'm often reminded of a story of, of, of a lady who had contacted me many years, a few years ago, maybe 20, about 2015, she contacted me. She had seen my face name, you know, a, a, a write-up in the paper for a seminar that I presented on, on pensions. And she called me at my office and she said she had an issue with, you know, getting her pension and she wanted to know if I could help. To be honest, I had no time for this lady. So I said to her, call me back next week and I kind of just brushed it off. Anyway, she called me back and I agreed to set up a meeting with her. So let's call her Miss Ruby. Oh, just for short. So Miss Ruby um, attends my office and I didn't know, I didn't appreciate how, how much of an elderly woman she was. But when I entered the meeting room, I remember Lysandra, Miss Ruby takes her purse from under her arm, opens it up, unfolds, takes a piece of a, a newspaper clipping from a plastic, um, a little plastic bag she had it in, wrapped in tissue. And she unravels it and holds up the newspaper clipping with my face on it and holds it against my face to verify it's me. And then once she was satisfied, once she'd done her due diligence that she was speaking to the right person, she proceeded to tell me her issue. And essentially she was the postmistress uh, many years in the seventies and she'd retired, but was having a difficulty getting, um, getting her pension. And she'd attended you know, different government offices, but she wasn't getting through. And I agreed to take on her case pro bono. And that's, that's, that and was important to me to do it um, pro bono because it was clear that I don't think she would have been able to, to, to afford it otherwise. And that started, I am not joking, two and a half years of calls to the Ministry of Finance, the Accountant General, at one point writing a letter to the Governor General. Wow. And after two and a half years of lobbying for this lady, she got a letter confirming she would start to receive her pension. Wow. And I'll be honest, there were times during that two and a half year period that I wanted to say to her, Miss Ruby, I, I'm not getting through. I, I, I don't think this is going to work. I'm sorry. But I kept going. And I'm glad I did because she gets her first statement. And the, the equivalent would be about 30 US for the month. Not a lot of money. Wow. But you have to understand something about civil servants in Jamaica. Get, receiving the government pension is something they take a lot of pride in. And for those who go to the post office still to collect the pension, it's a, it's a time to meet with their fellow retirees. It's, it's, a, it's a meaningful experience for them to get the pension from the government, to get their pension. And so when I pointed out to her that it wasn't a lot of money, she said it didn't matter. She was just happy to get her pension. But Lissandra, about um, two months later, she got a further statement that had calculated the, all the payments she had not received for the period of time she ought to have been getting the pension plus interest. 
that was over the um, the equivalent about this is Jamaica now 1.2 about 1.2 million Jamaican dollars. So that's about a hundred thousand US or is right. That so that, yeah, I'd have to. Or is that ten thousand? Wait, I need to do the calculation in my head. I think it's uh oh, ten ten thousand. Uh, we'll come back to that. So one point. <laughs> yeah, one point two million dollars and. She what she couldn't believe it. <laughs> she was just ecstatic. But she said to me, it gave her the ability to get cataract surgery, to pay for a visa to visit her family in the US, and to put some money for savings. And Miss Ruby said to me, she said, Miss Sanya, um, I can now see the buttons on my phone. I can now make a phone call without having to ask somebody to help me. And Lissandra, that is what living a dignified, independent life in retirement looks like. And so that, and that tapped right into my volunteer, you know, I felt good. And I felt this is what marketplace volunteerism looks like. You don't have to be working in an NGO. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be, it doesn't have to be through a church. You can, in your professional environment, use your offices, use your contacts, use your, your voice to actually advance the cause and needs of those who are less fortunate. And so I often reflect with fondness um, um, on the story of Miss Ruby and the fact that, that, that it ties right back into to what I'm so passionate about and why retirement security is important because she's a living example of what, what it looks like. Absolutely. So 1.2 million Jamaican dollars is actually 8,000 US dollars. That's it. And that was all it took to completely transform this woman's life with her cataract surgery and so on. Amazing, amazing story. So this brings me to my next question because I know you're super passionate about volunteerism and philanthropy and you're on the board. I think you're the chairman of the adult learning centers in Jamaica. Is that right? Right. right. And your passion for volunteerism started when you were in high school or college, right? So tell us that story. How did you become a volunteer? What makes you so passionate about it? Why should we do it? Go ahead. So I grew up in a, in a house where, um, you know, looking after the, the less fortunate is something that my parents always did, you know? And it's funny. It's, I'm just kind of now making a connection because my mom, she has a heart for the elderly that I have never seen before. But I, I wonder sometimes if that's, I'm just thinking about it now, that kind of connects to the retirement security passion Absolutely. that I have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always like visit shut-ins, um, you know, elderly relatives, you know, people who tend to be forgotten. Um, mommy has always been like that. And my dad has always been someone who I've grown up seeing helping the less fortunate so i definitely think environmentally i saw that and then once i started high school um i was a you know a member of a lot of volunteer clubs and organizations etc and in sixth form i started to do a lot of work for the society for the blind and i would volunteer my time as a reader writer because there was a program the government had where visually impaired students um not completely blind but students who had partial vision could um, attend traditional high schools, but would be accompanied by a reader writer at certain points in the school program. So I volunteered to be a reader writer. So I would literally read the question aloud. They would articulate the answer and I would write it. And um, I also used to read textbooks on tape because those were long before you would see so many audio textbooks available. I actually had to like with a cassette, put it in a tape recorder and read the textbook in order for these students to be able to have, um, have, you know, resources that they could rely on 
because they wouldn't be able to read the regular text. And transitioning from the Society for the Blind, um, I started to work and volunteer at Jamal, which would have been, became, later became Jamaica Foundation for Lifelong Learning. So how that started was Gavin, who at the time was just a friend, was just still my friend. If anybody told me I was going to be marrying this man like, you know, six years or seven years later, I'd be like, there's just no way. <laughs> but anyway, Gavin got up at the, at the, he stood at the front of the, the, the law class in first year faculty and invited volunteers to teach reading and writing at Jamal. Like I said, it became Jamaica Foundation for Lifelong Learning. And I was the only one who volunteered. And I remember a colleague put up her hand and asked, do you get paid? And Gavin said, richly, you get dividends of the heart. And I have never forgotten that response. And it's true. It, is such a, it was such a rewarding um, experience actually teaching people to read and write. And we're talking about adults so it's, as, as a name. Well, at the time when we, when we volunteered with Jamal, because we then started our own um, volunteer program, which is the Adult Learning Centers. But when it was Jamal, um, and when I first started, that's what really struck me. That these were people who had been denied the opportunity to go to, you know, secondary school or high school because of... Um, 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 financial issues with their parents or um, teenage pregnancy, getting into gangs, um, any number of, of things, parents abandoning them, or just not, you know, or needing children to work rather than, you know, go to school. And it's very hard for parents, of course, who would have to make that tough decision. And so many, there are many reasons why people got to the place where they needed, they were adults, but not literate and not, not numerate in any way. So, um, and I remember meeting a lady, she was probably like late seventies, a really old lady. She could be my grandmother and she was struggling to write her name. She couldn't even write her name. And this was, this was first year law for me when I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. I'm not happy. I don't know. And you know, tears came to my eyes because I said, this is a lady who is struggling to write her name. And I have the privilege of studying at the Faculty of Law at the University of the West Indies, and I'm bitching and complaining about it. Like, you know, just it gave me some perspective on just the blessing of, of being able to read. And I asked her, why are you here? Like, why do you, why at seven, I don't know her age, but let's say I had to guess, I would say like late 70s. Why do you want to learn to read and write now? And she said to me, I want to be able to read to my grandchildren. And it's that, it's that kind of, desire to advance yourself to ensure that you the next generation does better is, is stronger that that propels a lot of the people in the in in, in the center to, to come forward and to, to better their, themselves no matter where they are in life and you see that's why breaking that intergenerational poverty when it comes to pension savings is important because if you're going to talk about, I need to put my children in a better position where I can read to them, where I can help them. Similarly, we can't be looking to our children to look after us in our old age. We have to put them in a position where they have financial independence, where we break this intergenerational poverty, break the intergenerational dependence. So it all kind of ties in in terms of, you know, just, just how as a culture, we need to be able to stand on our own independently. But after a few years, back to the, the center, we we decided to set up our own thing because that would have given us a lot more autonomy around the curriculum uh, and we wouldn't have to be tied to the government curriculum on, on adult learning. And so we started Adult Learning Centers of Jamaica and Gavin and I formed it together and we have had volunteers, there are a lot of 
corporate leaders in Jamaica, um, emerging and up and coming leaders who have volunteered in this at the center through the years. And it's, it's a rich program. The, the students are all eager and hungry to learn, but there is still a stigma around, you know, illiteracy, of course. And so we generally have a policy where if we see our students, you know, in the plaza or on the you know, in a mall, in a store. We never quite say, we don't say where we know them from because there's a bit of, so we don't say, why I haven't seen you in class or why are you not coming to school? We don't say that. So there's a general respect that there's sensitivity around it. If the student um, addresses us as teacher or, you know, makes ref reference to the school or the program, then that's different. So we tend to try and rec recognize that there needs to be some sensitivity around that. But we love the program. And right now, many of my family members volunteer. My mom, my dad, they teach. And my mom is one of the you know, most favorite teachers at the center. But we love it. But we've had to stop because of COVID. Uh, hopefully, we can restart um, sometime next year. Amazing, amazing. Just hearing your whole career trajectory and how much service there is in it, not just on the side at through adult learning centers, but also through your work. So yes, you do the corporate commercial law, IP law, but the pensions part of it is such an important part of your work that is also about serving others. And that's how I view my career as well. Um, I don't separate my giving back from my work. It's so intertwined, like every day I'm giving back through my work. Uh, but now you're having me think about, well, maybe I should add on more volunteering on the side outside of what I do in my work too. <laughs> okay, so that brings me to this question. So everybody thinks that I am you, Sanya, which is what I mean is, <laughs> what I mean is ambitious, climbing the corporate ladder, right? Doing it all. So everyone looks at me from the outside, the schools that I've gone to and think that's who Lysandra is. But people who really know me know that I'm more bohemian, free-spirited, entrepreneurial. Freedom is my number one core value. So I've never really existed inside a very strict corporate environment. Virgin was the closest I came to that. And it's such an amazing institution that it was the only place I could have spent seven years of my career. But looking at you, I'm like, oh, everybody wants me to be Sanya, where top of partner at a law firm, chairwoman of multiple organizations on the board of large financial institutions starting a nonprofit to give back to adult um, people who are illiterate as adults and all these other things and you're a mother and you're a wife and all these other things so Sanya how do you do it oh and I almost forgot you're also an Eisenhower fellow for 2020 let's see if we'll have time to talk about that too so Sanya, how do you do all of these things and still stay sane? What is your advice for the rest of us normal human beings? <laughs> well, I can tell you it's not easy. Um, and I mean, a lot of times I feel like I'm not, I'm not keeping it all together. I'll be really honest. But um, and I hate the phrase work-life balance. I hate that phrase. Hate it. I feel like, like, what does that mean? I mean, I, so for me, it's about, um, and my associate actually introduced me to this term, work-life integration, right? So recognizing and that the concept of balance seems to suggest things are kind of in an even, you know, state. And that, that's just not possible. And so for me, I've come to a place of one, recognizing that I have to slow down when I say slow down, I mean be practical and realistic as to what I can get through in every day. 
So I used to be, I think, a little bit too um, ambitious as to what each day would, would accomplish. And so I've started taking a new approach in terms of, okay, practically, what can you actually get through today? And balance that against what needs to get through, what, like what needs to happen and be completed today. So I do that at the start of every week I kind of go through. And then secondly, I have accepted that it's okay and it doesn't mean I'm a bad mother or wife if today the work has to be a priority over Julian, that's my son, um, or today it means, or this weekend is a weekend I'm not available to do anything but get the work done. And nothing's, I'm not a bad lawyer if, or director or anything else if um, I'm like, no, this weekend this week is about my family and I'm not, I'm not available and, and being unapologetic about that. And I'll be honest, I didn't, it, it's taken me a while to get here. And I think I've reached a point of appreciating my value to my clients and to my family. And so I'm okay with saying, no, I'm not available today. But I can tell you three years ago, four years ago, I would feel, you know, I had to be available to clients. I couldn't tell them, no, I couldn't, I had to find a way to fit it in. No, the schedule can't accommodate that. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have two to three open, you know, but you're working from 8 a.m. and I'm exhausted by two o'clock. So I can't give you the best of me between two and three. Freezing so, fire. Freezing yeah. fire. <laughs> so availability for me has taken on a new meaning. It's not, is the slot open on, in the diary? It's, am I actually available? Like mentally, can I give this time to you? And, um, and so, and I think because my clients, uh, I, I, I'm generally very big on client care. Um, my clients are, I think, you know, they respond well. If, I, if Sanya's not available, she's not available um, because I get their work done. Uh, but for me, I must tell you, um, Julian, of course, he's two and a half years old and he would be a new addition to the, the, the ecosystem and his needs have, his needs changed. So what, what I could, what he needed from me at one is completely different at two and a half and three. And so I'm even recognizing that I'm going to have to shift and, and be able to kind of be ag agile and, and adapt as he gets older and his needs are needs change. And then of course that's going to transition again at a different point when he becomes more independent and doesn't need me as much either. So, but, but it's not, it's not a, it's not a perfect, please. I don't want anybody to think it's a picture of perfection. There are days when I'm exhausted, when I, 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 there are days when I don't prioritize myself, you know, where I'm not, when my big thing now is kickboxing, when I haven't hit kickboxing for like a week and it, it makes me miserable. And I am kind of miserable already. So it makes me like extra miserable. <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes my, my husband is like, please go and work out. Like you need to come back a happier person. <laughs> so, but yeah, so it, it's, a, it's a kind of work in progress, but I like the, the, the concept of work-life integration. And I, I like the concept of, um, I, somebody gets, um, described an analogy. I think I heard it on a podcast. Like essentially it's like juggling a whole, you know, different balls, right? But some are made of glass, some are made of plastic, some are made of rubber. So in terms of determining what can drop, what you can't afford, it, it changes from time to time. It changes as to what's in the air and, and how you have to keep it going. But I am no longer feeling guilty if I, if, if I make decisions about prioritizing. But planning, and I saw you did your, um, your IG story about planning and planning your day. And, and I, I can't underscore enough how important that is. And that practice that you are sharing with others, it's really, really key taking a time and planning your day and, and, and everything needs to be tied. Right. So for us as women, we're in the week and the month and the year this falls, this particular project or, or goal. 
and also whatever else you have to do. So I, I used to have a to-do list that didn't quite correlate with the meeting list, the meeting diary. So I now have to map the two. So if you're going to be in three or four meetings for the day, can you really get much else done? So asking those questions, but planning and taking that, that planning time is critical. Absolutely. People look at my calendar or my planning system and think, oh my God, you're so disciplined. You're so productive. You're so crazy. It's overwhelming. I could never do this. But then I ask them, you know, do you want to be successful or do you not want to be successful? <laughs> right. And if you do, then you have to plan. Otherwise you will drop so many balls and you just can't afford to drop a lot of them. Just like you said, the balls that are glass, you can't drop them. So they have to be in your calendar so that you can pay attention to the things that are high priority. So I have one last question for you, Sanya. This has been an amazing, amazing interview so far. Um, my last question for you goes back to my first or second question, which is, a lot of lawyers are going to be listening to this episode. I get a lot of interest from lawyers who are burned out, who got on the law track because it's a profession and it's what you're supposed to do and found that their personalities didn't match the field or that they're, um, that they're overburdened with work or they're in the wrong field of law and so on. And these are not just Caribbean clients. I have a lot of clients from Europe and the U.S., who are lawyers too, who are in the same boat. So what three pieces of advice would you give a lawyer? How do you make a law career a sole career? So number one, I would say is you need to find the practice area that you're passionate about. You do. And there's so many different areas that you could practice in. And, and it continues to grow and open up. So research those areas. Because a lot of times it's not the law that's the problem, it's what type of law you're practicing. Because very few attorneys are like, you know, do everything, that's not possible. So what are you focusing on? So ensure that your feeling of frustration is not because of the practice area, but you know, it's, it's, it's actually law itself. Now, if it's law itself, then you need to actually, I think you need to pivot out of law altogether. But think carefully about whether it's not the practice area that's kind of, you know, not exciting you. And you need to ensure that the practice area lines up with your temperament. So for Jamaica, for example, litigation is, you know, really intense. It takes a lot of you. It's emotionally draining. It's demand, physically demanding. Do you, is, is that the issue? Is, is, it, is it the demands of a litigation practice versus like corporate where you're closing deals? So the intensity is kind of, you know, they have short, short blocks of intensity, but it requires somebody who's very good with um, document management and, you know, managing like projects and pulling all the pieces together. So identify your, your, your core strengths and whether or not it ties with the practice era. I think the other thing as well is recognize that it's to, to do well at law and anything really, Lissandra, I'm sure you tell all your clients, you have to put in the work. You have to put in the work. So to, to make anything a sole career, it has to be something that you're prepared to put in the work. And so ask yourself that question. Is the issue the, the, the practice area? Is it, is it resonating with, the, with my personality, how I work, my strengths? And then also, am I really prepared to put in the work to be a lawyer? Do I want that? Because a lot of young people, young, like younger than me, <laughs> um, their, their view is no longer climb, climb the partnership you know, and make partner. They're not interested in that. So, you know, it's, it kind of depends on where you are. Now, when I started, that's all that mattered. We, we were all about trying to make partner. So it's really, what do you want at the end of the day? But I think at the end, at, my last point would be about being authentic. Because I feel that we're so often, especially as women, we're pulled into this feeling of 
being somebody that we're not. So we we look at we look at people in you know the public space on TV, and we feel like I want to be that person. And so you 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 adopt a persona that's really not you, and it's exhausting. And so if you if you make a decision to be authentic, and when I say authentic, I mean not just being true to yourself, but also just being honest in everything you do. I do think that, that also makes a difference. Um, but also, it's it's not a big deal if you're not a lawyer. I mean, a lot of, we, we glamorize it a lot, and I I don't really think that's. I don't think there's anything that justifies it. <laughs> I mean, what I, you have to really find what, what, what makes you passionate um, and what gets you up in the morning. And I'll tell you, there are lots of days that the practice of law can be really draining. And I'm happy that I've found, I've found the practice of pensions law because I love corporate commercial law. I love the, the tempo of it. But pensions law and the way in which it ties into my passion for nation building because that truly makes me feel like that gets me energized. I'm like, yeah, this is where what makes me happy. And I, the way I can tie it into that contribution to Jamaica, that makes me happy. And it, it hit me when I did the fellowship. The, so the, fellow, the, the intense part of the fellowship has ended. There are some meetings and stuff next year, but um, meeting other people who are passionate about retirement security, who this is what they do. And also women my age, I mean, it was, um, <laughs> yeah, it was like a nerd fest. We were just like swapping like, you know, pension stories and, but it was great. I know that I'm forming this working group to, to make a proposal to the minister. As I started drafting the, the, the paper, I felt so excited. I was like, yes, I knew. I'm like, this is what I want to be doing. And that's where I think you're, you need to get to that place when you're like, I feel good. I actually feel a change in my mood when I think about how this is going to make an impact. So that would kind of be my kind of closing Absolutely. You're speaking my language right here. Um, first, it's understanding who you are, not who you think you are, and acting from that place of who you are authentically and not making apologies for it, right? Then second, it is figuring out what is a match for that personality. Is it litigation? Is it pensions? Is it corporate, commercial, intellectual property? What is a match for me? And you actually said something really interesting in the begin beginning. Law is a great foundation to go and be in communications or go and be in policy or go and be in media, right? So what is a match for your personality and how can you transition into that, whether it's an area of practice or a completely different field altogether? And then third, go deep, persist. When it makes you come alive, go deep into it. You're in flow. Do your best. Pull out all the stops and just go for it with brute force effort. And that's when you get the reward, the results at the end of the day. So, Sanya, this has been incredible. Like, I've enjoyed it. My favorite part of this episode was the pensions part. <laughs> Right? Um, I found how you explain it and how passionate you are about it to be really, really interesting. I'm sure my listeners will as well. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. You've really kind Thank of you. motivated me this morning. Thank you, Lissandra. Really had a good time. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. Bye. If you love this episode, remember to hit subscribe and leave us a review. And if you're a professional, executive, or entrepreneur that's interested in taking one of our coaching programs, head on over to soulcareer.com and sign up for a free consultation. We would love to hear from you.